Well, good morning. Hello, my name is Jim. My name's Mike. And we are here uh, not alongside Graham. We've seen Graham briefly this morning, but we are also here at the 2022 Goodwood Revival. Yeah, so Graham is, is out there obviously mixing with the stars and his, his friends and besties. But however, I, we just don't want to cramp his style. He said, you know, that we might just embarrass ourselves thoroughly by getting so starstruck. So we, we've been relegated to the car park. Uh, no, I'm joking, we haven't really. Uh, Graham is out there, so you've probably heard some fantastic coverage from Graham over the last couple of days. And we are absolutely privileged to be standing here on a beautiful sunny Sunday in Goodwood in, uh, in mid-September. Uh, amongst all the planes actually at the minute. Yeah, this is much more your bag than it is mine, I think. Although one thing that has caught my eye is that honking great thing that's parked at the back there. I mean, first of all, it is huge. What is it? It is a, a 1943 Catalina C lane. As a kid, I loved these things. I always wanted to have a toy of one. I never, never seemed to manage to get one, but they're such a cool-looking thing, different from everything else. Because, of course, they're designed to land on the sea. They've got sort of outriggers with pods underneath to help uh, maintain balance when it's in the water. And the bottom half, it's shaped like a boat. But probably the most distinctive thing, I guess, are those pods on the side. Well, the, uh, yeah, the two bubbles at the back, they caught my eye. But actually, I think just sat on, uh, on the sea, bobbing about, watching the waves lap over those things would be, uh, be quite cool, I think. If the waves have got that high, you've probably got a problem because that's quite high up the, uh, high up the plane. Um, but nevertheless, it's perfect if you're out at sea and you're, you're doing reconnaissance or if you're looking for somebody that's, that needs picking up, this plane called Miss Pickup, uh, get it, then, then it's perfect because, of course, you can lean into those pods, look down into the water and, and see what's going on. No, it's very cool. And I, uh, yeah, Miss Pickup, the, uh, the uh, slightly scantily clad lady draped over the side of it, is quite, a, quite an artistic representation. I have to admit, I'm a huge fan of that sort of pin-up art. I think it's just so beautifully done. I love the style of it. But then I, I really like the sort of style of the, the 40s and, and 50s as well. And so Revival is obviously fantastic for that, isn't it? The pick-up on the side kind of reminds me of all of the faux pornographic artwork that you tend to get in a Toby Carvery or something like that. The naughty seaside postcards, isn't it? Oh, yes, with the, uh, the buxom babes or the, the, yeah, the slightly retunged uh, gentleman with uh, his eyes popping out with a handkerchief tied and said, I know what you mean. Is that me? <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? You said it. <laughs> well, I know who you can be. Um, well, we've had a good morning so far, that's about it. We're about to have a falling out. <laughs> Sunday at the Goodwood Revival 2022. I'm in the uh, collecting area. It's just gone quiet for a moment, so I'm going to grab an opportunity to talk to a gentleman who's standing beside a GT40. There are several GT40s in here, but this gentleman, Gary Bartlett, has uh, just told me a rather interesting story. Let's go through and explore that again. You've owned this for a little while, but you had a find with it. I was staying in London, and a friend of mine called up one Sunday morning, and he said, Gary, I'm going to come and pick you up and take you down to Bewley. There's something I want to show you. And I've been around cars a long time, so he picked me up drove over to Bewley and he said, I want you to look at this Ford GT40. And as soon as I saw it, I knew what it was, a Mark III, and there are seven of them. But I didn't really know much about this car until I started doing research on it. And as I looked at it, it was the next to the last GT40 Mark III made, and it was owned originally by Sir Max Aitken. And when Sir Max, Lord Beaverbrook, got done with it, he put it in the National Motor Museum in Bewley, and it had only 6,000 miles on it. The museum didn't own it. A woman up in Ipswich had ended up with it, so got to know her, took two years to buy it. I even went to Paris and took her to dinner. So I really wanted it because I know rare cars, and especially a rare car like this and a, and a GT40, of course, that was an original car. So took it to, I know some really good people in East Sussex that do things like this, CKL Developments in Battle. And, I, and I've known them for a long time. They've done other cars for me. Main Chris, he's a good friend of mine, and my mechanic, Barry Burgess. We got the car, got all the paperwork done, which is an entire another story about how that happened. Trucked it from the National Motor Museum to CKL, and we just took it apart. We didn't, it's an unrestored car. The only thing we had to do, we, we couldn't save the paint. We, we had to, and the paint is the exact color, it's called amaranth, and we used a spectrograph to get the data, to get the exact color, took it to a paint shop in Hastings, and the guy at the paint shop in Hastings said, got, got the paint on the shelf, mate, and I said, no, I don't think you do, and he said, it's 67 Ford Fairlane Imperial Maroon, it's just Ford paint with a fancy name. But at any rate, we didn't restore it, 
Barry just took the car apart, replaced consumables. Of course, you know, you do all the brake hydraulics and tires and, and, and valves and valve springs and all of that stuff. But didn't restore it. Just took it apart. Even took the windshield washer, windscreen washer motor apart and cleaned it and put it back. Every, I mean, we dismantled it, but he did it in eight months. That's that's really quite extraordinary. I mean, this is this is such a rare car, a completely iconic car of its era. We just before we started talking formally, you mentioned the Le Mans '66 film, and you know that's a lot of people have seen that recently. It's been a very popular film. Well, I, I, I love it. I've seen it probably four times, but I think it's a good, and those seven-liter engines would do 7,000 RPMs, which is kind of a surprise for a big engine like that. In the end, I don't think Ken Miles checked out in the car that they had there. It looked like a Mark I. It was a J car that he was killed in at, at Riverside. But there's only, and it's really accurate, because I got to know some of the people that were at Ford in period, and there really was a conflict between Carroll Shelby and Ford Motor Company. Yeah, it, it, it does very much uh, focus on that conflict because Carroll Shelby, I, I met him here many, many years ago. He was a completely driven individual and he was a stubborn son of a, you know, he really, really wanted to get things done his way and his way was the right way, but uh, Fords didn't quite see it that way initially. You know, ages ago, um, I got invited to a dinner at the Peterson Museum in Los Angeles honoring Carroll Shelby, and, and Carroll had a lot of his drivers. I kind of got to know him a little bit over the years. Not not really well, but kind of. And he had a lot of his drivers there, and each one of the drivers got up to the podium and was talking about funny things about Carroll Shelby, and I think there were 150 of us at the Peterson. And Carroll Shelby came up, looked over the crowd, and said, you know, I don't give a shit about any of this, and turned around and walked off. And we all thought it was a joke. He didn't come back. But that was Carroll Shelby. Uh, yeah, he was... Uh it was an individual, an individual, but uh, he knew exactly what he wanted to achieve. And I think probably more than that, he knew he could achieve it. Well, he did. The, the movie, though, you speak about the movie, there were a couple of things they left out, a lot, a lot of really accurate details in it. But there weren't just two teams at Le Mans 66, there were actually four. So you had Ford, Carroll Shelby, uh, Holman Moody in South Carolina, a NASCAR team, and Alan Mann here in the UK also worked on the Mark II with the seven-liter engine in it. And they kind of left that. They made one little reference to, to the NASCAR team in the pits at Le Mans, and that was, that was Holman Moody. But well, Holman Moody were very, very closely associated with Ford in, in drag racing, in NASCAR, everything. Yep, they were. And very... Uh, yeah, Holman Moody was very successful in NASCAR with Ford and especially their 7-liter FE engine because in period, starting in right around 63, is when they started using the big block engines in NASCAR. I think it was a 406, moved to a 427, and the, the engine changed over the years. I knew one of the mechanics on another NASCAR team that specialized in FE. That was a family of the 7-liter engine that was in the Mark II. And that's what Holman Moody specialized in in NASCAR very successfully. Yeah, well, also in drag racing as well, I think. I, I don't know so much about drag racing, but I know there was a Ford team that used Ford Thunderbolts in 64, and they had the 7-liter FE engine in that in 64. Yeah. So how long have you owned this car? Found it at the National Motor Museum in 2010. Yeah. We finally I got it bought in early 2012, and Barry had it done the end of, of 2012. Well, it's a delight to see you. It's a delight to see the car. Uh, I love seeing the GT40s. I have driven one. And it was one of the experiences that I will always treasure and remember. But I've never driven one on track, but there you go. Well, you you can't have everything. My wife and I, when we picked it up in April. I, I'd never even sat in the car. I knew what it was, but I'd driven a lot of cars, mainly Jags, I said. But I thought we got it done. We'd drive it from Battle to Dover on the A259 and back. Oh, yeah, and it was, it was just kind of a warm day. We never made it. I thought my wife was going to pass out with the heat. And even though it's a road car... It's a, it's a hot road car, and I mean hot, boiling hot on the inside. So on the road, it's not a lot of fun. However, on the track, it's a completely different story. It's done 2,000 miles here at Goodwood yeah. on the track over the years. because It's been a course car here for, I think this is the 10th year as a course car here at, at the Revival. But this is such a historic car and such an original, unrestored car. I'd really hate to see anything happen to it.
So we have just wandered into the Earl's Court Motor Show and uh, the first thing that caught our eye was the first car. We're stood chatting with Ollie and we're looking at what can only be described as automotive perfection really. It's an Aston Martin DB5 but it's not just any Aston Martin DB5 is it? No it's not indeed so it's a fully restored DB5 that's been completed by Aston Martin Works. The car is yeah an absolute A-grade representation of exactly how an original DB5 would have been built in as near to perfect condition as you would find. We started with an original and it was rebuilt and restored or is it built from ground up? Yeah, so start with an original and then rebuilt and restored. There are a thousand DB5s produced in total so they are an extremely exclusive piece of automotive art so definitely don't want to let them go to waste. But it's, it's one of those cars that I think is, uh, as you say, produced in limited numbers, but so iconic that you really can't let any of them fade away or disappear, can you? So c can you take a, a DB5 in pretty much any condition and, and get it back to this? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, Works run a restoration programme where we have a set restoration fee for customers who bring a car to us. Then from there, we'll look into you know exactly what that car is, the background of it, and does it need a little bit more or, or actually is it in quite a good condition already? and of course customers who acquire them privately look to do the same as well as us making sure that the ones that exist uh, you know, are in the best condition they can be. So I, I came in and I made some funny noises when I saw this because I, I have a, or had when I was a kid, a 118th scale model of this in this colour but it's quite unusual isn't it? You're saying it's, it's, it's not maybe not a one-off but certainly unusual. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this car is in Caribbean Pearl, which is a, a light blue, and it's an original colour. But so many DB5s, as per the iconic Bond car, were silver and grey with black leathers inside. So this with the navy leather is, yeah, one of a handful of cars in that colour. I, uh, I do think if I was uh, lucky enough to be in a position to afford one of these that I would go different but it's a bit like Ferrari, you buy your first Ferrari, you agonise over the colours and you just buy a red one, a DB5, yeah I think I, I would have to go James Bond lookalike and try and get, uh, try and get a similar number plate actually because I saw a BMT 216. A came up for auction not that long ago and it didn't go for silly money but I thought well I haven't got the DB5 so it would just look silly really wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, the the iconic image and, and uh, you know film of, of Bond is what sets everybody off down that that road. But uh, we also do have uh, the DB5 Goldfinger continuation car here oh, this that's weekend. That's so cool. Where's, where's that? So that's down in our hospitality uh, suite. That's got all the working gadgets. Uh, we just produced 25 of those, and the last one here is available and uh, is there for people to see. So. Funny thing is, just yesterday, I got the, the Playmobil version of that with the, with the weapons that pop out and everything for my little boy to play with. He doesn't know yet, with all the slashes and stuff, just, just by pure chance. But they, those are so cool, aren't they? Yeah. yeah, an even more exclusive club, but to have, a, to have one with working gadgets. But that's got to be every bloke's secret fantasy to have one of those, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, I hope there's at least 25 people out there that have that fantasy for sure. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sure there is, but uh, exclusivity always comes at a price as well. And, uh, and of course, I would imagine this comes at a price for, uh, for this model here that you said is for sale. What, uh, what, do we, what do we look at? We'll give you some free advertising as if you needed it. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, so this uh, Caribbean Pearl car is uh, £948,000 as you see it here today at Goodwood. Will you take a check? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Does it have to clear before we're allowed to take it? Yes, please. Damn. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Great to meet Thank you. you. I'm in the collecting area with Tom Dark in... Uh, front of the Cooper that you're just about to go off in. Yes. Looking forward to a run out in this? Yeah, looking forward to a good run out. Um, we've got some quite stiff competition in front of us, uh, but we'll, we'll do our best here. Yeah. yeah, so what are you, second row, third row? Uh, second row, so okay. fifth, fifth, seventh grid, right. behind Sam and Will. So. Qualified pretty well. I mean, it's a potent machine, isn't it? Yeah, it's a potent machine. It's a very well-balanced car, got plenty of power. Um, we've just got to try and keep up with these, uh, these youngsters, really. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do just fine, but how long have you owned this car? Um, I've had it four years now. Um, I race it quite um, competitively with the HGPCA on a regular basis. That's why I've heard the name. I keep hearing, the, well, all weekend I've been hearing people saying, you must go and talk to Tom Dark. Yes, and I've, got, um, I've also got the Cooper here and I've also got the Bugatti and the um, Goodwood Trophy as well. So two very different cars. <laughs> very much so, yeah. Well, uh, which do you prefer driving? 
Um, if I'm going to be honest, I prefer driving a Bugatti. Uh, it's got bags of power, almost 300 horsepower. Um, it's a bit of a machine to wrestle with, but uh, great fun. Different experience. So, well, enjoy your race. Uh, I wish you well. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. We're in this wonderful collection in the collecting area of the great racers of the 50s and I'm talking to Patrick Blakeney Edwards in front of you, you're just about to go out in, probably I think one of the greatest cars of its period, the Maserati 250F. Yeah, it's been a bucket list car for me to sit in, let alone be able to race around Goodwood, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a very lucky boy. I've wanted to do this ever since I was a child. All people of my age had a poster of a 250F in their bedroom, along with that nice tennis girl walking towards the yes, uh, towards the thing with a little skirt up. There was a 250F and that. So yeah, I'm very lucky. It's a delight to drive. The owner Neil Dyer is very kind to let me have a go in it, and uh, and it's beautifully prepared by Walter Heel. So it's a great thing. It, it's not the fastest 250F. But it's just a lovely thing, and it's, as I say, it's an honour for me to drive it. I'm, I'm told that they handle so well. I know, I know Sterling told me once that it was one of his favourite cars, one of the most enjoyable cars he ever drove. Not necessarily the most competitive for him, but he really enjoyed driving. Yeah, and I, I've only done a few laps of qualifying. It was a slightly disjointed session with a couple of red flags, so I've, I've got to get my head into it. But with my fastest time, which I think was a 28, I was starting to understand how benign it is from a handling point of view. And that certainly at the moment, the car's quicker than me. We haven't got a lot to prove. You know, we're at the back, or not right at the back of the grid, but towards the tail end. So all I really want to do is maybe improve my lap time a little bit, stay out of the way of the front runners, because there's a big speed differential in this race. Go and have some fun, um, and then just revel in the glory of sitting in a Maserati 250F. I'm Paul Coughlin, and I'm the MD for Rensport, and we're Porsche restorers. That one's my own car, which we built as a demonstrator to reveal at Goodwood Revival, really, this time. And it's to commemorate the 1973 2.7 RS. So it's our version of what a modern version should be like. Physically on the outside, it's the same as the RS. So it's got the proper rear quarter panels on it, the proper wings and all the panels are all on it. Except we've put, instead of the fiberglass ducktail, we've got a carbon fiber one on it. And then we've put a much more powerful engine in it, semi-active suspension on it proper brakes which will stop you on it six pot billet calipers always handy yeah it does help yeah electronic air conditioning it's got everything that you need to have a nice car to drive now not like driving an old classic you've got the physical looks of everything but you've got modern technology but of course when this car was new originally it was the very best of the time so actually it's, it's quite fitting that it's still now the very best of its time but looks the part and looks like it should do rather than I don't know, lots, lots of modern cars tend to look a bit, not amorphous, but homogenous, shall we say. They're all sort of going down a, a route and looking fairly similar. When you look at this, there's no doubt about what it is, is there? It's just, it's an iconic look. The 2.7 RS is probably the most iconic 911 from the 70s. You know, it's that picture postcard car that people my age, 50, had. You know, that's, that's what it's about. So this, this is in golf blue, and there's obviously been some serious lightweight modifications. You see the hinges for the boot, lightweight, you say carbon fibre, uh, deck and, and tail. Some of the biggest trumpets I think I've seen, absolutely huge. The intake's massive, but talk us through the engine. Well, the engine we've developed with AT power throttles based on a 3.2 Carrera engine, which is from the late 1980s. It's all fully forged, so it's got a forged crankshaft, forged rods, forged pistons, which are much higher compression. It's now just under 3.5 litre. The independent throttle bodies which have been developed by AT Power but we we changed the size of the trumpets on them for different torque curves. Because it's my own car it's like the development car so it's all the latest stuff so we use development camshafts in it and so on. It creates an incredible sound and it's just an incredible car. Brace yourself for this.
So it's, uh, it's hard work to uh, have to drive around in this and develop it all, all in, uh, in the name of business, of course. But what, what originally drew you into wanting to do, to do this? What sparked it all off for you? When I left school, I went straight into doing an apprenticeship at the Porsche main dealer in Warwick, which was our local one, and I've been in it ever since. As always with the motor trade, you fall into it and then you never quite know how to escape it, do you? Or go and do anything else? I don't think there's any escape from the motor trade, no. <laughs> then to be fair, when your trade looks like this, I don't think there is a need to escape it really, is there? So, No, it's like growing up playing with your own toys. Can't beat it. That's it. <laughs> Not a bad way to earn a living. No. Um, so, I've got some stats here in front of me. 0-60, Power. Let's have a look. Oh, 300 brake horsepower, so a lot. Limited slip diff good one of my favorite features though tweed interior is amazing yeah we use genuine harris tweed as well so we've got the houndstooth in there but it's the yeah. genuine scottish harris tweed which we use if we're going to a lot of the modern houndstooth interiors that you see in cars it's it's sort of been through the whole you know it lives in a lives in a hotel sort of thing where it's like had a thousand bums on it over 15 years sort of thing is in it doesn't wear out the harris tweed is proper handmade it looks worn as soon as you put it in um, and because we do a lot of cars for the foreign market we sell quite a lot out to japan now and they love anything british it's all fun for us but to them it's about being very english even though it's from scotland <laughs> um, and can you tell us a bit more about the company? Me and my dad started Rensport back in 2012. Uh, we're in Morton in Marsh, right in the middle of the Cotswolds. And we've just grown from strength to strength, doing something that we enjoy. Everybody that works for me enjoys doing the job. People don't come and work for me because they have to come and work for me. It's like a, a job of passion for everybody, you know. And I think that, uh, that certainly shows in the end result, because looking around the, the collection here, it's just a collection of perfection really it's it's it really really is that's what people want now you know they're on the hunt for something better than whatever what everybody else has got it's finding the best of what you can you know that you can't really accept second class workmanship anymore i think finding yourself in a position though where you know that you can produce the best of the best and that people will quite happily quite rightfully pay for that i it must be the absolute dream to be able to go to work and know that you can take this and this is going to be someone's pride and joy. This isn't a fiesta that you've built here. You know, it's someone's going to buy this and they're going to truly love it. And presumably, it will be unless it's already built, bespoke entirely to to them. Well, there's a lot of people. I mean, most of the cars are all built bespoke, and a lot of people they enjoy the build process as much as the final product, and they find fun. It's like having a tailor-made suit rather than going and buying one from Burton, sort of thing. And it's we've got customers that have bought two or three cars and it's the build process that makes them come back again because they sort of they miss it it's just awesome i think uh, we'll, we'll grab some pictures and make sure we sit them up on the socials so everyone can see what we can see but they are they are beautiful the paint finish and the interior quality finish is just it's just absolutely stunning so deep as well i think actually if if it was me i don't think i'm not sure if i'd be too scared to drive it but i think yeah having the uh, i would have to have more than one i think just you could always have one maybe <laughs> just just in the barns you could sit there and look at it of an evening over a glass of wine or something because it's they they are truly of that borderline between automotive and art they, they are automotive art it has to be said i have got more than one <laughs> excellent excellent as we thought you would as we thought you would You and Sergison, yeah. I love the pipe. Uh, an affectation, or you really do smoke a pipe? Uh, no, I don't smoke at all. It'll kill you. Not that racing cars will, but... You know what it says on the back of the tickets, motorsport is dangerous. Yes, it is, yeah. My, my wife can vouch for that. She's had quite a bad accident. Uh, she's all right now. You and talk to me about the car. Tell me what it is. A former Graham Hill car, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, one of the last front-engine Grand Prix cars, and it's also one of the first to have like a sequential gearbox, which was the Achilles heel in the day, and also is, still is. You know, development over the years hasn't helped that. It was 1958. Graham Hill drove this in 1958 through the entire season. Apparently, there are other Hill cars in the uh, same collection. Well, yes, we've got. Uh, I used to drive a Shadow DN1, which was a Graham Hill car. That one's now been sold, but we've also I've been driving a Lola T70 this weekend, which is a Graham Hill car. That's a quite a beast of a car, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's quite a quite a challenge. On Friday, I went out in this in the parade, 
then had to run down pit lane to jump into a 1936 Maserati and then run down pit lane to jump into the uh, Grey Mill T70 Lola. Some would say life could be a awful lot worse than that. If, if I didn't do it, some other poor sod would have to do it. So it's, I've got to take one for the team every now and then. The, the crosses we have to bear sometimes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, you're wellish down the grid, but looking forward to a good race. Yes, my head wasn't in a good place for qualifying. It was all, it was all down to me, and I qualified quite poorly in all three races. But the two that I had yesterday, we finished really well. So, so we'll see where we go. Just have a good weekend, same as the rest of it. Keep it shiny side up. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Now, for those that don't know, David Piper was a very, very well-known racing driver in the 60s and 70s. And you, most unusually, also have a featured slot in the end credits of the Le Mans film, of Steve McQueen's film. You were there through the filming of that and had a very nasty accident. Yes, that's right. We had a lot of fun there, actually. It was uh, a lot of friends of mine. We were all together, you know, with Steve, and uh, we thoroughly enjoyed it until I had my accident. Derek Bell had a similar accident when his car caught fire. He didn't get very badly burnt, though. Uh, he was quite lucky in that respect. But uh, it was good fun, and it was quite... An adventure. I mean, Steve was going to make a Formula One film, but uh, he missed the bus there and someone yeah, else did it. So, yes, it. yes, exactly. But you had Frank. a long and, and very illustrious career, particularly in sports cars. Yes, well, I was very lucky to buy quite a nice car. Oh, oh, oh we've got to go. Yeah, All right, uh, thank you, David. Hi, we are the Aston Workshop from Durham in the northeast of England. Travelled a long way to come to, to, <laughs> to Goodwood. But uh, we show off what we do, cover as much as we can, all our restorations. We cover all the parts in house, which is pretty good. Manufacture engine blocks, we manufacture crankshafts, we build cars from the ground upwards, or we sell, buy and sell cars. We cover all aspects of the Aston motoring. But that's out in the countryside, which is very good when you drive to work in the morning. Everyone drives to town, we drive out to the country. That's it, that's the borders. <laughs> Excellent, so it's a pretty drive to work, and then when you get to work, there's a lot of pretty things lying around at work as well. It's all work, though. <laughs> <laughs> don't, 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 don't tell my boss that's that good. <laughs> so I've basically been bending John's ear, because as you know, I have a, a serious Aston bent, and I walked in, and there's a DB5 that's sat here, which is just absolutely beautiful, as you'd probably expect, because they, they all are absolutely beautiful. And it's... Well, it's, it's better than new. Uh, we were talking about the values of these cars now, and, and as we know, they're, they're getting up towards a million pounds. It's, they are, yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago that, that we were talking quarter of a million, and it seemed a lot of money. And, well, who wouldn't want one, basically? They, they are beautiful. But you said that, uh, sort of going back a few way, they, they were a little bit less than that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Same, same as, well, all cars when produced, they have a value, then they, then they drop away. And then someone realizes how good they are, what they are, and then you start building them again. Initially, it's for just clients that want to refresh their car, but then it becomes a demand for buying and selling. And that's the way that my boss promoted his, his company. It's initially, from a restoration for his own benefit, which somebody decided that once we finished it, they would buy it. He thought that was a very good idea, yes. so he built, he built more. At the time, it was probably. Could probably buy a nice DB5 for about five thousand pounds, um, and it was. I'm crying. <laughs> about forty-five thousand for a build. But these these people were not investors; they were Aston lovers. Totally different thing. So from from there, it just expanded from there. We now have a, a monster business covering all aspects of Aston work. This is, I mean, if you, if you did decide you wanted to have one as an investment, it. If you could buy one, and you, or you had one, and you, know, you, you had spent, I think you said to me earlier that you could buy a, a ropey one effectively for three fifty, four hundred thousand. If you spent the same again, you're still going to be having a good investment there, as well as a beautiful car. I mean, I, I could never bring myself to sell one if I had one, but it, it would make a lot of sense. You can you can give it to us for a ground-up restoration, which is the day to be done, or we sell cars which are what we class as rolling restoration. These are cars you can sit in and drive. But the customer can buy them and then improve them over a period of time, either by their own work 
or specialist work? As much as I, I feel happy rebuilding an old Ford or something, I'm not entirely sure that the level of craftsmanship is, is anything like the car that I can see in front of me here. Let's be completely honest. It's okay, but but this is a different level. I mean, there's there's no uh, there's no tins of hammerite that have gone into this. This is this has all been done very very properly. But this uh, this particular one, unusual and rare though uh, though DB5s are. This one is even more unusual and more rare, isn't it? Because we uh, I can see a couple of engine blocks being restored over in the corner, but we're we're stood next to something that's not an engine block. Uh, but it looks like it's about to go into this this DB5. So what is this? This this one is an EV, an electric power plant, which would fit the DB5. It is actually scheduled for a DB6. <coughs> this is by customer demand. We had a request from a customer to build a DB6 electric powered, so of course we could. Um, we have a specialist to supply the power plant. We prepare the, the vehicle and marry the two together. This looks to me to be roughly the same sort of size, shape and consistency as an engine. So does it drop pretty much straight in? It looks like it does. It's, it's designed so that it drops in exactly on the same mountings in the same place. All, all the uh, upgrades that we do are designed to suit the, the, the Aston. Uh, we don't chop the Aston up or cut it or make any changes to, to, to fit things. Uh, so that any time you don't want it to electric anymore, you lift it out. As you, say, so you can you can put the uh, put a real engine or a proper engine back in it if you want. That's perfect. Then. Just, That's okay. just take the first one out, pop, pop it away somewhere safe, yep. and then you can change it again. Excellent. That's if you, if you make it look good, you can put it in the living room. You know, it's, it's a nice focal point in the living room. Excellent. Not a bad idea. So I, I'm sold on this. I'm not sure that Mrs G would be, but th this is this is built by Swindon, who of course do race engines. They've done lots of e bits and pieces. They are a, a serious name in in this game. So if you're going to have a, an, a a lump built by somebody, Swindon makes a lot of sense yeah we, we know all about Aston's we had this request we don't know anything about EVs so we go to the experts and give them a criteria and this is the, the first one so we, we've yet to fit it into the DB6 and then prove it it'd be a very interesting comparison to drive this one as opposed to all the DB6s I've driven over the years the torque is an interesting thing because we were talking about the the engine and you're saying two and a half thousand generally speaking is roughly where they start to develop torque in in a normal combustion form with this obviously it's going to start building torque a lot quicker so it's going to be a different drive altogether potentially you, you, you touch the pedal yeah <laughs> so, uh, so i'm promised anyway <laughs> uh, this, <Isn't> that interesting <laughs> uh, and in terms of the the batteries are they going to be where the fuel tanks would be or Oh, it's actually all together inside yeah, the whole thing altogether. The major unit, which includes all the battery pack, yep. all in one single container with the, the motor and the drive. So you set that in place, connect to the prop shaft, yep. needs the ancillaries to make it work because it's, it's water-cooled for the batteries, water-cooled for the, the motor. Yep. Uh, so they have to go on, but that's basically it. You could lift that out any time. And replace it. But I suppose what this does as well is puts uh, with traditional EVs their flat floor or batteries in the boot as you say and you have to make various changes to the car because it was never designed to have weight in those areas. Doing it like this does it actually mean most of the rest of the car it copes better with it because the weight's where it should be? That's correct. It's, it's been designed to do that, to put the weight where it was, uh, keep it the same we have, we've got to try it, we've got to test it, we've got to see if it gets, gives the criteria we require, the, the distance, and we still have the option to, to put batteries in the back because the fuel tank is no longer required. And with the Aston, it's a large fuel tank, yep. so it does, give us, it does give us some possibilities for extra power to, to go there. So this is what I was thinking, effectively you have an extended range version with your extended range tank. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, makes, it makes a great idea. It's, it's such a neat solution, really. So the... the the box, effectively, at the front is in a cradle, which presumably then just mounts up to the standard mounts looking at it down there. So that would be to a cross member or something across. And then, as you say, where, where the gearbox mountings would go, there's a, a cradle at the back. And then to the prop. It's, it's a really, really neat solution. You'd obviously never know from the outside. But if you want something that, that can give you a, a more adaptable driving characteristic, I guess, or you want some you know, uh, environmentally conscious way of being able to run your Aston around, or just something different. It seems like a great way of being able to do it. So it's a very, very mixed review here in Goodwood. Uh, people are totally abhorrent. They won't even consider the idea. Um, but it's horses for courses. It is. I mean, the thing is, we've, we've driven a lot of EVs. And there's a lot to be said for the way that they drive in terms of the power. I mean, they, you tend to find that EV vehicles are generally SUVs that are very soulless or homogenous or whatever. And, and actually, a, 
putting an electrified drivetrain into a classic, as you say, some people might find it sacrilegious in truth, it, it does offer a very drivable solution and you still get a lot of the feel. We drove the um, MGB with the with the um, electric powertrain. It's only about 150 horsepower. But it was it was really good to drive. Perfect. It was absolutely yeah. perfect to drive because the battery wasn't too big, so they weren't getting hung, hung up on range. Because loads of people say, "Oh, I need a 300 mile range." Why? How long? How far away is work? Oh, seven miles. Okay, so you don't need 300. But with a 300 mile range, become comes a huge amount of weight whereas I mean just trying to lift that is probably more than I could lift but it's certainly not a 300 mile range is it so the the weight isn't there. We specified at about 200 we're all looking for similar performance we don't particularly want to be a racing car it's a nice drivable usable project um, which gives the option we have customers in London you jump in a petrol engine Aston driving to, to where they live and they're charged the car will be charged uh, excess um, for doing that. This, this eliminates that. So the man that lives there, good idea. The man that lives in the countryside, he wants to drive away with his exhaust not ringing in his ears. He's he he's got his, his original engine. Well, so if you if you can rack the the drivetrain away, then what's the harm? Effectively, you can easily pop it back in again. You know, and you you I suppose if you ever then decide to sell it, you can offer the, the vehicle with both powertrains. It's not yeah, it comes with a spare engine. <laughs> yeah. ready to drop in. And if nothing else, and you've reduced the wear and use on the engine, I suppose. So, yeah, keep hold of it. Got the original numbers, and maybe they're, they're all still I'm there. Ju just waiting for the first person that drives it to a track on EV power, puts the petrol engine back in it, does a track day in it, and then <laughs> swaps it. Or you could bring it here, drive around the track with the uh, with the petrol engine yep. in, into the pit, swap it out, and drive it out yep. on electric. Guess there's there's a challenge for next year. Velcro pastas on the engine would be the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and as a fun, I really wish I was recording earlier on because we were talking about uh, whether or not it'd be sensible for me to, to look at buying an Aston because uh, I need to convince my wife and you said yes so uh, we want to suggest people buy Astons <laughs> <laughs> so there you go if you're listening dear uh, then I'm terribly sorry it's all, uh, it's all John's fault <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it thank you so much for talking to us pleasure thank, thank you, you. Adrian Jensen's just about to go out in the car which you're sharing this weekend. Right, and he's fairly near the front, so I'm thinking you're hoping for a good result. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it's obviously a long race, and uh, who knows, but hopefully we'll have a decent result. Are you in for the second half? No, I'm not driving, so my son Harry's in driving. Uh, yeah, no, unfortunately I had a cycling accident 12 months ago and so I lost they had to take my license away for a year because any head injury that's what happens I did the Drome Hill demonstration because that's okay but uh, yeah yeah well, it's good to see you back here again enjoy the rest of your weekend I wish the boys every success in the race thank you very much thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And so we are stood here next to what is a very, very, very pretty Austin, and it's uh, it's run by this chap here. Would you mind telling us your name, sir? It's Raymond Rowe. And how long have you uh, have you owned this particular beauty? I, I don't own it. It's the company owned. It's McLaren. McLaren owns it. Oh, actually, still McLaren owned, is it? McLaren owns it. Yes, I had it um, sent over from uh, New Zealand. I can't remember, but it's a few years ago. Can you tell us what it is that we're actually looking at? Because it is a special car, this one, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's um, Bruce actually drove this in New Zealand in the, for hill climbs. And he seemed to uh, do, do pretty well in it. All hence, um, you know, he ended up in England. And it's been clocked at quite a, a decent speed, this. So just to sort of set the scene, I suppose, you've got a, a boat-type tail. It's a two-seater. It's a small car, obviously, being a little lost in. There's absolutely no side to it whatsoever. And if I clench my fist, it's pretty much as wide as the tyres. So this has done some pretty exceptional speed, isn't it? Yeah, it's rather, it could be rather scary if you think about it. <laughs> what sort of top speed does it get up to then? Well, officially it's been clocked in New Zealand at 101 mile an hour. <laughs> That's incredible. That, you're right. <laughs> For some reason or other, they put an Ulster type back on it. I think it looks, it looks smart with the Ulster, Ulster back. I quite fancied 
Uh, there's one that's that's parked up at Brooklyn's actually. It's got a, um, a Brooklyn's exhaust pipe out the side. Yeah. Has the same kind of tail on it. Okay. Yeah, two seater. And I looked at that and kind of fell in love with it a bit. I think it's quite a pretty looking thing. But this car's going to be you know, priceless, really, because of its history. And you, unique. This is the only one, and that's that's it. And that's why we're here today. Yes. Well, I love uh, I love a few of the little touches, like uh, just at the uh, the front of the bonnet there. Is that a temperature gauge? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's water. Oh yeah. S slightly awkward timing. Play Colonel Bogey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I said when it was going down there earlier on, they were they were going down. You see, and so I said to him about, you know, what is is Colonel Bogey coming? He says yes. Not uh, not just now, but later later on. <laughs> Just, just for the for the purpose of everyone listening, that was the band of the Royal Marines has just passed us by. So, <laughs> yeah. quite impressive in, in itself, to be honest, to see that. We've just had the um, uh, the minute silence for the Queen. It was incredible. I've never seen Goodwood entirely stop and no, stand quite still. It was quite eerie, wasn't it? Just one gun went off, and then everybody within about three seconds had stopped and stood up, yeah. hadn't they? And that was it. Yeah, that, that was good, though, wasn't it? Yeah, very good, very proper. Yeah. Oh, this is just a cool thing. I, I like the idea of of being able to drive. I keep saying the idea of being able to drive something like this to the pub but that it would be superb fun around a country road because it would be easy to place I think because of the size of it I think it would although if you and me were sat next to each other in here it might get a little bit cosy might it to be fair <laughs> yeah you could be right there one of the great names in Formula One history has to be James Hunt. James had an enormous success, but not initially. That's how he earned the sobriquet Hunt the Shunt. But he came on to win just about everything, charm just about everybody. And when he retired, he then went on to working with Murray on the Formula One coverage. And that was sometimes fractious and very often really enjoyable, their relationship. But I'm delighted to talk to Freddie Hunt son of James and I've already commented that he looks so much like a younger version of his father. Is that a problem for you sometimes that you know people just want to know about your dad? Um, no I wouldn't say it's a problem I mean it was a bit overwhelming when I first started racing and yeah just lots of press and media and and lots of attention at racetracks which I wasn't used to so but you know over the years I've got more used to it and it's just part of the job now I suppose. I mean, suddenly as, you, as your career has grown in the business of motorsport that's happening perhaps a bit less and people are looking at your career rather than just as a reflection of your dad's which is a lot to live up to. Well yeah ex exactly and um, you know in the early days it really troubled me it really you know there was a lot, a lot of pressure which I put the pressure on myself I didn't need to but um, that's why I didn't perform very well early on shame because you know I was naturally faster than I am now as as one gets slower with age but now I've got my head together and um, things are going a lot better. Your young lady here Amy is uh, also daughter of a pretty illustrious father. I raced alongside your father many years ago. Patrick Watts, notable saloon car racer. Yeah no he was. Um, he hasn't had any sons so I had to pick up that sort of baton but very much later in my 20s but yeah no, no dad was I didn't really understand what dad's sort of job was when I was younger and coming to racetracks was just a part of life and it kind of took me until I was about 10 to realise that not everyone's dad is a racing driver and but it was I always loved it it's, it's, it's been part of our whole family history it's grown off around motorsport now you all go to racing yeah yeah I mean um, absolutely I mean actually Fred and I met on a racetrack I was testing and um, no was I racing or You're testing racing the mini you just was, raced the mini last I was, year that was it I was, race, I was racing a 1964 Mini Cooper S and he came over for a cup of tea and the rest is history. Sometimes meetings on racetracks have unfortunate consequences. Yours was clearly not. No, this one's worked out quite nicely, actually. I'm very, very pleased it happened, and thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks to Robo for, for introducing us. <laughs> He's the one to blame. So, uh, Freddie, where, where now in your career and where to? So, Le Mans is the target. Hopefully by 2026. I mean, that's the that's the dream goal to try and win Le Mans on that year. That's the 50th anniversary of Dad's championship. Sure. Now I'm finally in a position where I might be able to actually ex execute the plan. So I've got a good team behind me. Writer Engineering. I really do, really do believe in them. They've they've got 20 years GT experience, but brand new pro start racing. But this this season, our engineer and, and my teammate had never driven the cars, never never worked on these cars before. And first race we were we were pretty slow. 
but by the second race in just a few months of very little testing we managed to get the car going quickly and now we are we're one of the fastest cars. And I'm guessing the connection with your father's name must help spring a little more money in the sponsorship. I mean, it's, it's, everything relies on sponsorship now. It does. Um, I mean, one would think that you, you know, sponsors should come easily to me, but unfortunately it's not the case. Sponsors have been, you know, Texaco, that was due to who I am, not because of my, my, my own abilities, but they've, they've pulled out now and we're always looking for more sponsors, but it's not as easy as one would think. You surprise me, particularly as it's a well-known team that you're working with. Yeah, I mean this year you know, it's a very new relationship, but we've got a you know, five-year contract and I think now we've got some results as well. I think a lot of people were hesitant to, to invest in me because they hadn't really seen what I could potentially do, so I had a bit of a very much chicken and egg situation. Well, I can't deliver the results without the money, but I can't get the money without the results. But now I'm getting the results, so hopefully things should be a bit, bit different from now on. You know, I think gone are the days are, oh, we can spare 100 grand from a marketing budget to have a good laugh at the, go to the races, but it's a bit different now, I think. But you, you, fortunately, I mean, I'm going back to your dad again, but you haven't developed the reputation which he had in his early stages of um, being a little wild on track. You can be as wild as you like off track, but, but not on track. Um, I think I did have a bit of reputation when I was younger. You know, I, I crashed one too many cars, several too many, and um, but I think I might be finally shaking off that reputation because, you know, touch wood, I haven't really had any major incidents in the past few years but I've kept my nose clean most of the time had a few you know, dinks and scrapes here and there but it's um, no, I've, I've been pretty consistent and keeping on the black stuff most of the time so I think the uh, I might be starting to shake off my reputation for being yeah, a bit of a, yeah. a risk yeah <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that so your target is Le Mans 2026 yes and thereafter GT racer or Formula One or uh, Formula Formula One. I'm way too old for Formula One, um, but I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens after that. But maybe maybe stay in GTS and I don't know. I'll, I'll be over four. I'll be forty by then, so I might retire. Well, I, I was I was talking to Derek Bell earlier, and uh, Derek is uh, just a little older than me, and I'm fairly well into my seventies. And uh, Derek's made a very good career post Le Mans of driving anything and everything for anybody who wants him. So. You know, there's a career there. Yeah, there is potential there, which is nice. I mean, if I, over the next few years, if they are successful, then there should be options for me to stay in motorsport driving, um, So, which would be nice, definitely. I do like racing. Well, thank you to both of you. Uh, it's been a delight to talk to you. I really hope your careers, both your careers, go well. You need to graduate out of minis. I did that many years ago. And you, I certainly hope, reach that 2026 target of Le Mans. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, here we are. Tis the end of three days. It's starting to cloud over now, but it has been a scorcher today. Gentlemen, have you enjoyed the weekend? Oh, oh yes, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's certainly been very warm. I've been wandering around. I'm the walking wounded, <laughs> with uh, po post off and um, and sort of struggling. I was, was hoping maybe we would bump into like a period medical team that could have given me a better sling or something, but but no, alas. Other than that, it's been it's been great. I think, isn't it? It has. Well, we bumped into a lady who had a rather large wrench, which she offered to do something with, didn't she? She was asking about your uh, your injuries. I don't think she quite believed the arm wrestling incident story, but uh, she was uh, she was game for a laugh anyway, and did offer to uh, tighten your equipment with her tool, didn't she? So. She was keen on a large Whitworth. Um, so, who have you been speaking to, Graham? There's been been lots of people. Uh, yes, uh, it's been it's been quite interesting. Uh, I'd like to have got one or two people that I didn't get, like. Jensen, because he just climbed in the car. Once the helmet goes on, it's a waste of time. Well, indeed. And if you want to see any of these photos or anything that we've taken whilst we're here, don't forget to check out the socials. We are UK Motor Talk everywhere. So Instagram, Facebook, that's where you can find uh, all this glorious, glorious content. So, highlight of the weekend for you? You know, of all the things that we've done, I quite enjoyed chatting to a chap called John from the Aston Martin workshop, who's developing um, a, a number of different things for, for DB5s and DB6s and working on them, having had several in the past which he'd paid a few grand for, unbelievable, um, including an, an EV power powertrain and explaining some of the, the love and hate that's got over time. That was, 
really quite interesting to be honest for me. Uh, yeah, I think having a, uh, a chat with the chaps from Caterham, uh, chat with the chaps from Rensport and just, you know, sharing a bit of time with people who have the same passion for cars as we do and we all do and just people who are in it because they like what they do for, for no other reason. But I think this, this whole event really is just an example of why, because we can because we like yeah. it and it's I mean it's a, a mammoth undertaking and it must be however many people hours of set up work have gone into uh, to putting all this on but it is you know the the word gets bandied around it really is a glorious event this but uh, watching uh, a few of the cars fly around the track as well and just watching the uh, the value of the grid grow year on year on year if not the numbers in it it's um, it's uh, it's always quite spectacular just watching the cars go flat out around the track and as always they tend to they, they can be worth however many millions of pounds and however many hours have gone into them but when the visor goes down and the lights go out uh, at the end of the day it's a bunch of racing drivers in a bunch of racing cars and we get to see some proper racing as well I said uh, picking up on that point to one of our American colleagues uh, yesterday that uh, in the States they just don't race these historic cars as hard I mean here they're absolutely full-on racing I mean I've, I've just watched the tail end of the uh, the big GT race the you know the classic two driver race and uh, the number of cars that got lunched during that and, and I think there were some three possibly three semi-lightweight Jaguars now what's one of those worth these days half a million quid or thereabouts um, they're not messing they're really going for it yeah, it is pretty exceptional. There's, they aren't holding back when they're out there, are they? I mean, we, we spoke to a number of people that were racing and um, a chap that had taken uh, an Austin 7. It was Bruce McLaren's Austin 7 that had been out actually on the tracks uh, today and over the weekend just for parade laps. We were saying, you know, the, it's a 100-mile-an-hour car. There's no, there's no safety to it. it, it is, they're out there just enjoying themselves, sliding around on skinny tyres. I mean, yeah. where else can you see that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things here uh, that... You just won't see anywhere else. I mean, I was asked about the number of other similar events. Well, yes, there are. This really is the granddaddy of them all, but there are other similar events globally now. But I don't think any of them have the prestige, the cachet, or the cast of this one. Not only does, is it a period track with all of those period elements to it, but uh, the Duke has a way of tempting people from all parts of the globe with cars that normally live in museums or are you know, not raced with as much uh, verve as they are here and he seems to persuade people to come and hence we get such huge crowds here. One of the things I found interesting this year, and I don't know whether you've noticed this, there seems to be more families here. There's yes. It's more, yeah, becoming more family orientated. Yeah. yeah, definitely. There's there's something for all ages here and the over the road there's the rides and the helter-skelter and and it's like a fun fair. it's like a carnival or, you know, you can go and watch a film or see Grease sort of stage play being put on and there's, you know, people dressed up as actors roaming around putting on performances, there's live bands, there's, you know, actually if you don't like cars it's still a good day out, isn't it? I mean, it's not a, not a cheap day out, but there is so much else going on, as you say, aside from the cars. I think the interesting thing about this now is that it's weird when you see someone who hasn't dressed up and taken part yes. in it. There's more about about this place than the cars and even the planes, because there, there are planes here to see as well now, and you can you probably hear behind us that there are helicopters and such taking off for pleasure flights. But in um, in, in truth, now you everyone takes part. They make the atmosphere here, and when you see someone wandering around in jeans and a t-shirt, yeah. they just look weird. Yeah, yeah quite so. I mean, uh, we were commenting yesterday in. in the press office that in the same way that you walk into a supermarket now and if you see somebody wearing a mask you think well that's a little unusual here if you see somebody who isn't in some sort of period costume uh, some of them are more outrageous than others but if they haven't got any period costume on at all it does look quite weird because it's out of kilter with the rest I should think 98% of the people here and I have no idea how many there are I think a quarter of a million or so over the weekend yeah have all made the effort to dress up in some way yeah, definitely. Uh, as you say, I, th I think it is about a quarter million people here, and I'm, I'm just trying to think now how many people I've seen. Maybe 20, I reckon, walking around the site. It, it, to be fair, for, for, for a chap, it's not particularly difficult. You just wear a shirt and a tie and trousers or something. It's not, not particularly complicated. But when you look around, you think, oh, you know, 
they've made no real kind of effort to get into it. And it, you see some people have some incredible, absolutely incredible outfits, as you say, varying degrees of, of style, and, and people really do go all out. But some you know, families that you see wandering around have even bought period prams with them. It's, yes, yes. It, it, is, it is really incredible, it really is. Yeah, and I'm seeing more and more younger children here, even in the press room. You know, the, the, the quite young children sitting and, and, and just enjoying the place. Yeah, absolutely, and it's the, uh, like you say, there's the amount that, that keeps them entertained, but I think it's just how safe and welcome everyone's made to feel. It's, you know, it's pretty much all-inclusive. Everywhere you want to go, you can go. Uh, yeah, there's certain bits of the paddock or the collecting area that you can't get into without the right ticket or whatever, but I'd say probably a good 95% of the site, you can come and go as you please and wander around. And, and we saw Lord March just wandering through one of the paddocks, just a couple of people, one behind him, one in front of him, but then one of the guys wandered off, so he was just stood there looking at the cars, looking at a couple of um, little children's ride-on cars, and he stopped to admire those, and just, you know, this is his party, but he's just wandering through it, and just a lovely, relaxed atmosphere. I, I think another thing that's, that's great about Goodwood, and again, unlike other events, particularly sporting events, is that you you get really close to the cars, but the cars will still drive around you. Yeah. So you'll be you'll be wandering around, the marshals will blow the whistle and most people will get out of the way. There obviously there's some people that don't and these presumably are the same people that don't get out of the way for ambulances. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you know, I don't understand how you can't hear or see an ambulance but anyway, I, I digress. But the fact is you you can walk around and the car will drive past you and these are superstar cars in their own right. We've spoken about this at length before. But in many respects, the cars are the heroes of motorsport yeah. as well as the drivers. You know, there are iconic cars and iconic liveries and everything else. Um, and there's nowhere else really where you can get that close. So museums, they have ropes. Sporting events, you're not normally allowed down the pits or yeah. quite often yeah. into the paddocks. And certainly it's unusual that you get to get into the, uh, you know, into the garages. But here you are, you know, within touching, licking or sniffing distance of any of these vehicles, I suppose. I mean, it is one of the, the, the claims that... Uh it is more accessible than most other motorsports events. You can get to see pretty much everything, pretty much all of the cars, and there are drivers who are just wandering around. So if, if you're expecting to see the, you know, Jensen Button, for example, Adrian Newey and so on, uh, if you keep your eyes peeled, they are walking around. Uh, Mr. Newey, I've, I've spoken to him very briefly, he's trying to, to look very cool in the trilby in a, in a corduroy jacket, and. He's just wandering around, nobody's recognised him. It's extraordinary. You know, you see him on the TV, you don't necessarily put the name to the face when you see him in the flesh. I, I, I think that's the thing here. You, you see people, particularly if they're in, in their race gear, and you go, is, is that, what's that? You know, and you don't, yeah. you don't really notice. Uh, and, and you will just see you know, stars and, uh, as I say, star drivers, particularly just wandering around. Maybe, maybe not so much as, it, as perhaps in the past, but you do still, you see people wandering around and, uh, and jumping, looking at the cars. You see, you get the opportunity to speak to the people that run them quite often, or the people that are responsible for maintaining them. And that's, that's really interesting in itself, I think. Yeah, I think it is. It, 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 all of the, uh, you know, you can't talk to Formula One mechanics because they're not allowed by their media people to talk to anybody. Here you can talk to anybody and everybody, and they, they've all got a story to tell. In most cases, they're quite, quite happy to tell it as well I mean if if I've learned one thing through through the years that we've been doing UK Motor Talk is that most drivers and and owners and, and mechanics they're, they're car people yeah. uh, and that was really obvious on a number of different uh, stores and manufacturers we spoke to we spoke to um, some guys at Aston Martin we spoke to uh, to the guys at Caterham the guys the guy at Caterham he's built to them himself he's had loads of them they all are they you know they race them they build them their family have got them whatever it might be these people are in it because they love it, and so they're quite happy to stand there and talk to you. And it, it doesn't matter whether you're just a, have a casual interest in it, or whether you're you're involved, or whether you you say you own the car. And we say the the racing drivers themselves, they are car guys. We're all just car guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so. it. And it's uh, is is just the atmosphere that's been created that allows everybody to mingle and there's something yeah I, I don't know how you'd begin to create that sort of atmosphere at a football match let's say you know you can't imagine having instead of the dugout you they just sat in the stands if you know if uh, 
who's a footballer, Ronaldo, who's a footballer, isn't he? Don't know if he plays in this country or not, but anyway, say he came off at, uh, at half-time, got subbed off and just sat in, you know, row H, seat F. You know, that, that, that just wouldn't happen, would it? So there's always that separation. But here, that, that line just seems to be completely removed. Yes, there's a driver's club where they can all go and get a piece of, bit of peace and quiet. But in general, as you say, they'll just wander through the middle of everything, won't they? Yeah, indeed. So. As a closing thought, then, if you're wondering whether it's worth coming down, seeing everything and buying a ticket, the answer for me is emphatically yes. Yeah. Uh, it, if you're interested in cars, planes, fashion, just having a good day out there's something here for you so right consensus view is if you want a ticket for next year buy it now because they do get snapped up very very quickly i know the sunday tickets are already well into their allocation um but i can i think say the consensus view is uk motor talk will be back here next year yeah I, i would certainly say so definitely and on that note we'll leave you look out for us on all the socials as usual and uh go and have a listen to our podcast Have a look at the website because there's loads and loads of material, far more than we could put into any of our podcasts. There'll be loads more material there. Bye for now. See you soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye. to talk a first take media production <laughs>